We are a fortunate people because we have awesome worship here. It's so great. It's, uh, I echo what uh, Michael was pushing at earlier. I just am overwhelmed with the reality that God would condescend to become man. It, it just blows my mind. And Christmas does that for me, too. It, it's an overwhelming thought. He and I spent some time talking about it this week. We're going to look at that a little bit this morning as we dive into this. I'm going to ask you if you have a Bible with you. Maybe you have it electronically. You have a hard copy or you want to use one of the copies in the seat in front of you, underneath that seat, uh, to go to Luke chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 9. If you didn't grab one of the sets of notes this morning on your way in, you might want to get up and grab one of those. They're behind that little pillar there in the atrium, and uh, you can get a hard copy, or you can download it. They're, they're on the website as well. In recent weeks, what we've been doing is we've been marching towards Christmas by looking at all of these prophecies regarding this one who would come. And in the first week, we looked at the Magi coming from Persia. And how King Herod responded to that and how that fulfilled the prophecies and the things especially that we saw in Daniel. And last week, uh, we began looking at the pieces of the Old Testament and New Testament prophecies in the life of Simeon and this Old Testament individual who's written about in the New Testament. And what we found is that God is very precise in the things that He commits to us. Prophecy is a commitment of God. Prophecies are God's promises things that haven't yet happened, but he says it's going to happen. And he can be very precise because he knows the end from the beginning. And so he gives us this information. So we serve a God who is very precise because he knows the end from the beginning. We left off last week with Simeon holding the baby in his arms. And I said, it boggles my mind that that's God in the flesh. Before we dive back into the story, I would love to pray with you. Specifically, that God would help us to understand the magnitude of what's being described here. Would you pray with me? Let's bow together. Father, we just declared in song that you have no rival and you have no equal. And yours is the kingdom without end, and you're worthy of the power and the glory. And yet, we're going to look at you as a baby. And I understand, Father, why people trip over that. Were it not for the power of the Holy Spirit at work, revealing truth and things that you've shown us in your word, we'd be left to wonder, is this even possible? But God, you, you've shown us your word and you've given us the power of the Holy Spirit and you reveal things to keep us from being in the darkness. I pray that you would do that once again this morning that you would equip the saints, that you would draw us closer into relationship with you. And for those who are questioning, Father, or, or who are new to church and these things don't make sense, God, I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would surround those individuals to the degree that you would bring enlightenment, and that will happen through the work of your word. So, God, we pray for this in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. So we've got Simeon. External sources say he's very old. Most say greater than 100 years of age. And he's holding this baby in his arms. And he begins witnessing, proclaiming the name of this one. And he becomes a crucial witness to the identity of the baby. 
Look with me at verse 28. Just a chunk we're going to put on the screen for you. He took him into his arms. And I just got to echo it again. It's absolutely astounding to me. He's holding God in his arms. I'm convinced he's holding the great I am. And after you see what you've seen so far in the past couple of weeks and you understand this conversation that's developing with Mary and Joseph in the temple, you can know exactly who the Messiah is. And here's why this is important. You'll know that you know that you know that you're not spending your life with your ladder up against the wrong wall. And you want to know that. You want to know that if you're speaking into the lives of individuals who are looking for answers, that this is the truth. This is real. So let's step back into this story. Let's step back 2,000 years into this time when he's holding the child, and it comes from Luke chapter 2, and it starts with verse 29, and it begins this way, according to your word. Now, the reason it starts that way is because he's just recorded, Luke has just recorded that Simeon said, you told me, God, you told me that I could die when my eyes had finally seen the Messiah. When my eyes have seen the Christ child, then you will release me. And that's what Luke 2.29 is speaking of. And he says, now, because your word promised it, according to your words, I can be released for this reason. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Let's start with verse 29, according to your word. That means Simeon's basing everything he's about to say and everything he has said on the Bible, on his knowledge of what God has communicated, all of its promises, all of its prophecies. And he begins with these profound insights, and they are pregnant statements because he's going to speak of things that haven't happened yet, things that will be future. Last week I said, how unusual is it for a Jew standing in the temple in the first century Jerusalem, to begin speaking of these things. Let me show you these things. Verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. There's, there's something really shattering in what he's stating here. See, the prevailing belief in the first century among the Jews is that they're the chosen people of God, and they're already good with God. They already have their ticket punched, and yet he's talking about salvation here. The Jews understand that their, their legacy, their ancestry, provided them to be the chosen people. They're already saved. First century Jews knew that a Messiah was coming. Their understanding was he was coming to rescue them politically and that he would set up a kingdom and he would reign. But watch where Simeon goes. Verse 32, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Let me clarify for you what a Gentile is, especially if you're new to church, you want to know this. A Gentile, if you weren't born Jewish, is you, right? Okay? Look with me on the screen at this word ethnos, and this particular word is in your notes this morning. Uh, a Gentile is a person who's not born Jewish. It's not a derogatory term. It's just someone who wasn't born of the same race. They're, they're of a different habit, a different tribe. Now, this is a really significant statement. He's just said, my eyes have seen your salvation, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And he's standing in the temple in the first century. Gentiles are the ones who've made life miserable for the Jews. The Jews have made, made slaves of Pharaoh because of the Gentiles. The, the Gentiles 
brought invasion. And when they brought invasion, they brought false idol worship. And Gentile conquest resulted in Babylonian captivity. And, and Gentile conquest caused corruption. And the Jewish people had been attacked and killed and their nation destroyed. And so there is much hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles. And worst of all, they're under the Roman Empire at this point in time. And the Roman Empire of a Gentile nation has them under the boot. And yet, here you find Simeon saying, you've come as a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Now, mind you, he's not talking about a light of revelation to a specific one country. He's not like saying, you've come as a light to the nation of Italy. He's saying, you've come as a light of revelation to the entire world. Specifically, he says, the Gentiles. Let me put this in a framework in which you could appreciate it. Choose an enemy of the United States right now that you believe in 2021 would destroy the United States if they could as it's known to exist. Maybe what pops in your mind right now would North Korea, ISIS, the Taliban. You're getting the framework of how those in the first century who were Jewish thought of the Gentile nations. So choose that enemy in your mind and begin thinking of what he's saying, you have come as a light of revelation to the Taliban. And immediately we would want to recall and say, wait, 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 Simeon. You understand what you're saying? You're saying God has come to rescue those individuals who are our enemies? Wait, do you understand what they've done? And in that same breath, the person who is a Christ follower has to draw an extra breath and check themselves and say, we know what we once were too. We once were enemies of God. We once were in darkness. We once were lost and shrouded. And then we realize he's come for everyone, even those whom we would consider enemies, because we're all under this veil of darkness. Paul wrote about this, 2 Corinthians 3.16. We touched on it last week. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That means the veil was there in the first place. We're all in the darkness and the veil is taken away and you're in the light if you're in Christ Jesus. The Simeon's being very, very clear here. His old ancient eyes are looking at God's plan of salvation for the entire planet. This baby is only 40 days old. We understand that Mary's in the 40th day because of the time of purification. They've come to offer the two turtle doves for her purification as a sacrifice. He's barely 40 days old. How can Simeon's know what God's plan is before the baby's life is even lived out? Now, we've been told already in the story that the Holy Spirit is upon him, and you never want to take that lightly. The Holy Spirit is guiding him and enlightening him, and he's an aged man. So he's lived a very long time, and he's been meticulously watching and waiting. But also, Simeon obviously understands and believes the prophecies, and he can do the math, just like many other people living at this period of time. And he understands the consummation of the ages is at hand. Now, I'm not brilliant with math. Maybe you're not either. But I can add two and two together. 
And a lot of people living at this period of time, they could add two and two, and they could do the math. And that's why messianic expectations are running very, very high. I mentioned that last week. In the first century, at the time when Jesus is born, messianic expectations are off the charts because people are doing the math. And they're putting together the prophecies. And here's some very simple mathematics. And for that, I need to take you back to Daniel chapter 9. It's the other passage I referred to. So if you want to watch on the screen, go ahead or turn it in your Bible to Matthew or Daniel chapter 9. And let me just explain what's going on. Daniel's in Babylon. He's been in captivity. The Jewish nation has been in captivity for 70 years almost like 67, 68 years at that point. And he's been in prayer because he's been reading the book of Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, he sees that Jeremiah the prophet revealed that the Babylonian captivity would last 70 years. And Daniel realizes it's coming to an end. So he's in deep prayer asking God to bring about his purposes and establish his kingdom. And in the midst of his prayer, you find Daniel chapter 9, verse 21, an angel shows up. And his name is Gabriel. Watch. Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, just pause there for a second, that's prayer. That's a biblical word for prayer. You've been in prayer, Daniel. At the beginning of your prayer time... The command was issued, meaning God, in response to Daniel's prayer, issued a command for Gabriel to come to him. The command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Pause. I want you to recall the setting and that this is 500 plus years before Jesus is born. Now, let's just put that in context so we get this in our mind. Let's go from 2021, 500 years back in time. If you go back 500 years in time, you'll find King Henry VIII is on the throne in Europe. You'll find that Columbus just discovered for Spain a new world. Imagine somebody living at the time of Columbus writing about a baby to be born in 2021 in the back hills of Kentucky. Right? This is the framework of how obscure the setting is, and writing with this kind of precision about something that is going to unfold. And then the angel breaks open this prophecy. Verse 24, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Verse 25, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now, if you're new to church, you're reading that and you're thinking, what? What is that even talking about? Or maybe you've been in church for a while and you're looking at it thinking, did I just read Greek or is that in Spanish? That makes no sense to me. What is he describing here? Uh, you notice that he's used the word seven multiple times, especially if you have your Bible open, you might even want to circle the word seven or 70. And it's this particular word that you're going to see on the screen, Shavaim. 
And Shavayim is used liberally in the same way that we use a phrase here in our world today in English. You see it on the screen, seven, literally to be sevened. And it means sevens, referring to seven of anything. Let me help you with this before your eyes glaze over. We use the word dozen commonly in the English language. If someone's going to the grocery store from your family and you're talking about eggs, you say, hey, will you pick up a couple dozen? Or if someone's going to the bakery and you're feeling especially hungry and you want a donut, you'll say, hey, will you get me a dozen? Well, they don't have to qualify it by saying the word donut. Or when someone's going to the egg store, they don't have to qualify it by saying the word egg. Just say, I want a dozen. That's the way Shavayim is used liberally here. The seven means 70 or 77s of years. You're looking at biblical prophecy that's known as the 77s. Just hear this. Next to the prophecy in Isaiah in chapter 7, where it talks about the virgin will be with child, this passage in Daniel chapter 9 is the most profound, most encouraging, most exciting, most reassuring prophecy. It causes so much enthusiasm for believers. I want you to see why. But to what one side is encouraging, to another side is daunting and troubling and intimidating and confusing and just plain overwhelming. This is known as the 77s, and it's speaking specifically of the timing of a decree to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. Now hear this, Daniel's in Babylon, Israel's been in captivity 68 years. God is saying you're going to be released from Babylon, the walls of Jerusalem will be rebuilt, the city will be rebuilt, it's going to happen within a period of time, and from the issuing of that decree, something extraordinary is going to happen. Watch again, look with me and break it down, just verse 25. So you are to know and discern, meaning Daniel, study this, discern this. You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. We know that Cyrus the king in Persia issued the decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem in 538 B.C. That's when he told Nehemiah, you can go back and begin rebuilding the walls. So we have some very specific dates that are being laid out here. And we're being told Messiah the Prince will arrive after something transpires. This is why this passage is intimidating and daunting and troubling and encouraging and exciting, depending on which side of the fence you are on. Because it's pretty clear evidence that Jesus is the one. And over millennia, many have tried not to see this, but you cannot unsee this once you've seen it. It cannot be ignored. Matter of fact, the precision and the accuracy of what Daniel has written here, it, it's so precise that many individuals have tried to say, this was written around the time of Jesus and just attributed to Daniel. Others have said it was written at a much, much later date. But as hard as individuals try, archaeology over and over and over again shows that at the very latest, it was completed around 530 B.C. So here's what we know. 
the decree of Cyrus to rebuild Jerusalem was issued somewhere around 538 B.C., and they began rebuilding the wall over the course of the next years ahead of them. At a maximum, the walls of the city were completed by 444 B.C., That means from this point, the countdown had begun of the 77s. 77s is 490 years, but we're told 62 weeks and 17 weeks, which means 69. I know your eyes could glaze over on this. There's an old phrase that comes with preaching. I learned it in Bible college. If there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pew, right? Okay. I want to make sure there's no mist up here, and I want to make sure there's no fog out there so you understand what's being said here. Seventy-sevens is a total of 490 years. The angel has communicated to the prophet Daniel what's going to happen. The Messiah, the prince, before he comes, this will transpire seven weeks and 62 weeks. You can do the math, 69 times seven is 483. 483 years from this point, the Messiah will be walking planet Earth. I put a link in your notes this morning. It's at the very bottom of the notes. You can download it online or you can pick up the notes on the way out. And it's a link to an article that Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum wrote on this very thing. It's quite detailed and you can go into it and do all the math yourself and you'll find the detail that this is something that only God could reveal because only God knows the end from the beginning. And Simeon could do the math. He could do two and two. People living at this period of time, messianic expectations are very, very high because they understood. It's been about 500 years. It's been about that length of time. We should be watching for the Messiah. Now back to Simeon in the temple. He's got the baby in his arms, and we're told this in verse 33. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Mary and Joseph are shocked at this pronouncement. I told you last week the word is thumazo. It means to wonder or marvel over and over and over and over again. Because this is the first time they're hearing about the destiny of Jesus. From a stranger who possesses this very deep insight. They know that he's the Messiah. The angels have revealed that. But the shock is, he's coming as the Savior of the whole planet, even the Gentiles, even the enemies. And the second shock is, the world is going to be divided over him. The world is going to be at odds over this one. They've been told that the Messiah is there, and the scope of it is overwhelming the entire planet will be confronted with a choice because of this one. You face that choice in your life. You came to a point where you decided whether or not you believe this. Maybe you're still working through that issue, whether or not I really believe this. So here's where Simeon stops praising and he starts prophesying. Watch the next verse, verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So he blesses them, 
and he prepares them for a hard truth at the same time. And he launches with this reality that today many are not willing to hear. Because of this one, because of this child, not just in Israel, but the entire planet will be brought to a point of decision. And he uses this word, appointed. This baby I'm holding in my arms is appointed. The words in your notes, you see it on the screen, and this particular Greek word interpreting what he said in the ancient language, probably in Aramaic, it Kemai, it means to be outstretched, but it's both a literal and a figurative term. This one who is appointed, he is set out, he's stretched out for the whole world to see. But literally, he will be stretched out on the cross for the whole world to see. This one who has been appointed He's been appointed for this reason, verse 34, for the fall and the rise of many. Barely a month old, and we're told he's the dividing line on which everything else hinges. We think there's division in our nation over politics, over COVID, over money. You name the subject, and we would say, yeah, division is alive and well in the United States of America today. Amen? Amen, right? But God is saying himself, he's communicating the single greatest point of division that will ever exist is Jesus, because you have to do something with him. You're going to trip or you're going to stumble over him. And people respond in one of two ways. They trip over Jesus, or as I believe many of you have this morning, they surrender to Jesus. He says it's going to be, in verse 34, the fall of many, specifically where he's at in Israel. I want you to see this word, this word on the screen, this word tosis. The fall is a crash, the downfall of many. The, the undoing of many, the fall, means some to the point of absolute collapse who are going to walk away and say, thanks, but no thanks. No, I have no interest in that. Now, that sounds pretty mild because that isn't the way most people reject. I said people respond in one of two ways. They either trip over Jesus or they surrender to Jesus, some to the point of collapse. Paul wrote about this. Look with me on the screen at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. I know people, individuals, can cause division. I could name a political figure right now and 50% of the room would be divided over one person's name. But I don't know too many people who cause division in their death. Jesus is so divisive, there's even division in his death especially because of the prophecies and the promises that came associated with it. Bear with me on this. Let me show you two prophecies about his death. Isaiah 53, speaking of the Messiah, he's wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Or this one, Psalm 22, 
They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Understand that was written hundreds and hundreds of years before the crucifixion ever took place, but it's describing the crucifixion. The fulfillment of those prophecies from the Old Testament, the fulfillment of those promises became a massive boulder to the Jews, massive boulder to get around, that the Messiah would come and be executed, that he would die. And at the outcome of the crucifixion, the death became absolute foolishness to the Gentiles because the death of Jesus resulted in the resurrection of Jesus. And that was foolishness to them. And so Paul writes, to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness. And I can illustrate this. Remember Paul is on Mars Hill. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Mars Hill is this, this place in the ancient world where intellectuals went to debate issues. And he's on Mars Hill and he's in this forum area where he's debating with intellectuals and he begins talking about Jesus. Watch this, Acts 17, Acts chapter 17, verse 30. This is Paul speaking to that group of intellectuals. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And in church, we're good with that statement, but watch how those on Mars Hill received it. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer because to the Jews it's a stumbling block and to the Gentiles it's foolishness. But the reality is that the death of Jesus on the cross meant the defeat of death because it leads to the resurrection through which we, the believers, will one day also be resurrected. Got like three amens out of that. The Anastasia, we will be resurrected. Watch where Simeon goes with this. He's already talked about the crash, verse 34. The fall and the rise of many. See what to one side is the stumbling block. To the other side is the rise, the rise of many. And that's that next Greek word in your notes, the anastasis. And it's talking about not just standing up again. It's referring to a resurrection from death. Look where Scripture's going with this, Romans 6, 4. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his anastasis, his resurrection. Jesus said this is why he came. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Hoping for more than five amens on that one. Because that's us. The anastasis. And Simeon's holding the great I am in his arms. And he's 40 days old. And he says, this is why this one is here. And Simeon is de declaring a whole new layer that Mary and Joseph could not have ever seen coming. It's not just that people will be undecided over him and that they'll be divided over him. There's not only going to be separation, there's going to be conflict. There will be hostility. Because verse 34 says, he's a sign to be opposed to the end 
that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And the result of Simeon's statement there, the truth of it is, we live with the evidence of that statement every single day in 2021. You have people in your social circle who think this is utter foolishness. Perhaps you've never thought about this before. One of the evidences confirming that Jesus is the Messiah is the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. See, I would argue that people are fairly ambivalent in conversations when Buddha comes up or when Muhammad comes up or maybe when Gandhi comes up. But picture an individual holding a nail in their hand and a hammer and they're pounding away and they miss that hammer and they hit their thumb. What comes out of their mouth? Jesus Christ, that hurt. They never say, Buddha, that hurt. Or Muhammad. Why Jesus? Because what a powerful name it is. What a mighty name it is. The name of Jesus does things, but it also divides. Simeon is seeing this, and God's word is very, very clear. We're told that Jesus is the determiner of eternal destiny, and this one is destined to determine the rise and the fall of many meaning there are some who will not rise to the call of salvation. So Simeon is very, very knowledgeable of God's word. And he's speaking these things right out of the words of the mouth of Isaiah that wrote it 800 years earlier. Let me show you this. Isaiah 8.14. And he, speaking of Jesus, he, Messiah, will become a sanctuary. That's for some. A sanctuary to some, but also a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. Right there, and Simeon knows it, even in Jerusalem, among the very people who should have known better, there's going to be this stumbling and a falling. And that's why John wrote in chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus came unto his own, and his own said, nah, not really interested. But that's much more polite than the way that they said it. No, let's crucify him. Not really interested in him even living anymore. He came unto his own and his own crucified him. Prior to Jesus, the hearts of humans towards God were pretty hard to detect because of ceremonial function, because of the Old Testament codes and the laws and the ceremonies you could go to. And on a yearly basis and whatever function you went to at the synagogues, it was pretty easy to put a mask over your heart. You could fake it, in other words. Jesus comes along and he rips the mask off and he exposes the hypocrisy. Let me give you an example of that. Nobody at that period of time ever wanted to be regarded as righteous more than the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes or the priests. They wanted to be seen that way by everyone. Look with me on the screen at Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness." 
You ever spoken to somebody like that in a social circle? I bet you would remember it. Can you imagine? To the very people who wanted to be most considered righteous, Jesus rips the mask off. Says, you got a heart issue. You're not really in relationship with God. So if you want to go for the next level truth, we're coming into the ending of this. Hear this next level truth. When Jesus came, he literally revealed the hypocrisy of legalistic religion. The self-righteousness of it. And here's what it looks like. It's the sense of, yeah, I'm good. I've done a lot of good things in my life. I've got this list I've checked. I've, I bought coats for people who needed coats in the wintertime. And I gave canned food to the people who were homeless and they really needed food. And I've done a lot of good things. I think the scales are tipped in my favor. God's going to like me. That's the mask that Jesus rips off. He says, that's not going to do it for you. He reveals the exact same detail today. Before bringing up the gospel in a social setting, everyone seems good. Maybe you took me up on it this last week. I mentioned this last week. Go into a Christmas party, a social setting, where there's people on all sides of the spectrum, and you can have really easy conversation about sports and about finances and about politics. Well, not so much about politics, but... But just try throwing the Jesus grenade into the middle of the conversation. And you can watch it blow up. Charles Simeon said this all the way back in 1834. Speaking of Jesus, he said, When he is set forth, discord and division ensue. Then the indifferent discover a readiness to persecute. That's a very polite English man's way of saying, they'll go to dukes with you over Jesus. People will pull out their fists and they will persecute because as Simeon said, he's a sign to be opposed. So this rejection and this ugliness and this hatred in itself is a sign. So don't be surprised when people protest a nativity scene in the middle of a capital lawn. They're going to reject him. They're going to oppose him violently because as himself, the one who is the sign Jesus paid the ultimate price of rejection, the ultimate price, the crucifixion. Just imagine this with me, based on what you've discovered over the last three weeks. This is stunning. He's the sign of all signs. The long-awaited fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies, all the promises of God that can be found, will be rejected. All the Old Testament hope is brought forward, and with all the precision and all the detail that you've seen, everything meshes together in Jesus at the consummation of the ages. And people look at that information and say, nah, not interested. How do you explain that? How do you explain that kind of rejection? Well, not just the prophecy from Simeon where he said in Luke 2, the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. It's going to expose everyone. They're going to have to land on an issue. 2,000 years ago, Simeon describes in detail how our world will respond to the gospel. 30 years before Jesus is even dying and resurrected again. Long before our generation ever walked this planet. 
See, you can know that Jesus is the one because of the antagonistic rejection of him. Here's why. Because God said very clearly that those who are in the dark really like the dark. And I'm talking about spiritual darkness. This is the way it's said in Scripture, John 3.19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light. That's why, New Hope Church, I can say to you this morning, if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ this morning, praise God because you were once in the darkness yourself. There was once a veil over you that you have been able to be drawn out of the darkness is the work of the Holy Spirit of the living God in your life. Many people live their entire life say, I, I just wish I could see God at work. Well, hello, look at yourself. That you are in Jesus this morning is a work of God. You're not loving the darkness anymore. You may trip and find yourself falling into it, but you've been drawn by God's amazing grace into a relationship with him. And if you haven't discovered it yet, God's grace is amazing. Somebody should write a song about that. No joke, right? It is astounding. And Simeon saw all of this unfolding. So let me end cheery with you today. Today, if you have fully accepted the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, he's coming for you one day. Praise God for that. You belong to him. You have been forgiven of your sins. For many, many people, though, and you know individuals like this, he is a stumbling block. And it keeps them from receiving the forgiveness of God, from receiving eternal life. It's, it's the death and the resurrection of Jesus that changes everything. And how we respond to that determines our eternal destiny. So who is Jesus to you this morning? All that to ask you that question. You have to make a choice. There's no neutral ground with him. He polarizes everyone. To one Pharisee, you do the work of Satan. That's how you're healing people. To another Pharisee, he is the son of the living God. Judas fails. Peter repents. You see it time and time again. On the cross, one thief blasphemes. Another thief declares him to be Lord. Holy angels bow to him. Fallen angels scream out in rebellion against him as demons. He is the magnetic core around which the world rotates, and he draws some and he repels others. And everyone is brought to a point of decision, some to a point of collapse, others to the anastasis, the resurrection. Praise God if you're in Jesus Christ this morning. If you're not, you can be. You can receive the forgiveness of Jesus this morning. I'd be thrilled to talk with you about it after the service. I'll be down here in the front or in the prayer room. There'll be individuals over there. They'd be honored to talk with you about this. 
to help you understand how you can receive the forgiveness of God, how you can know that you'll have eternal life. Right now, what I would just love to do is just pray with you that God would be active in all of our lives this week because you know people who need to know what you know, and I would love for you to bring them with you on Christmas Eve. Let's pray together. God, that you would choose to send us out as ambassadors for you to tell this information, to share this love. What a privilege. We can loudly proclaim that you have no rival and that you have no equal and that yours is the glory. Help us, God, to put that to action this week, to glorify you, to speak of you, in the way that you worked in our life. Just let us be honest with people, Father. To speak of how you took the veil away from us. God, I ask that you would use us that way. For those who believe already, use them in a mighty way. Bless us all, Father, for having spent time in your word. God, I especially pray for my friends here who may not yet have a relationship with you and are wondering if this is real. God, that you would surround them with your loving arms and the power of the Holy Spirit right now in this moment to draw them to know that they can receive forgiveness of a lifetime of sin and know for sure that they're destined for eternity. You can do that, God. You did that with me. We praise you for the opportunities you've laid before us and for the ways you've opened your word this morning. And we ask, God, that you would remind us of it this week as we take on opportunities to speak of you. Use us. Use us for the expansion of your kingdom. I pray for all this in the majestic name of Jesus Christ, our soon coming King, and all God's people said, amen. Have a powerful week, New Hope.